Dirk. Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. Our Father, the one who has created all that is, the one who sustains all that is, the one who sees all that is. We now come into your presence, God. Not because you have not been here, but because we may not have been cognizant. We may not have been aware. We may not have stopped long enough to acknowledge your presence. God, yes, of course, prayer is a vehicle that we use to ask for blessings to ask you to intercede, to make ways out of no ways, to be a bridge over troubled water. But this morning, I just want to acknowledge your presence. That you are God. And you are not on our agenda, but we are on yours. We bow our heads. We bend the knee before you, God. We acknowledge that you are greater. We acknowledge that you are holier. We acknowledge that you love more, that you have more patience, that you are full of more grace and more forgiveness than we can ever think or imagine. We ask God that we would be transformed by your holiness. That we, we would be different because your presence has come upon us. That we, like Moses, our faces would glow, they would shine because we have been in the presence of Yahweh. Let us not take this time for granted. Let us not be casual listeners. Let us participate in the praise. Let us seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. Let us desire to follow you. God, I thank you for this opportunity to stand before your people and not tell them what I think, not tell them what I want to say, but to share with them what you have been sharing with me. God, I feel the pressure lifting. Preach your word through me this morning, God. And as your word goes forth, let it do what only you can do through it, and that is to 
not return to you void, but to accomplish all that you sent it forth to accomplish. Let it change our hearts. Let it change our walk. Let it change our minds so that we may leave here different than how we came in, determined to represent you well in a world that is dying to see the sons and daughters of God be revealed. Now, God, open every ear, open every heart, so that we may hear from you. May your spirit take your word and change our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Mm-mm. Indeed, indeed. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Boy, I tell you, I, I, I joke about it sometimes, but I think I understand when the old preachers say, I feel my help coming on. I feel better. Yes, I feel better. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, indeed. So for this uh, morning, as, as always, I, I always like to say thank you. And, and guys, you know, I, I, I thank my wife and my daughters often and all the time. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, but I mean it, right? It's not just cliche. I mean it because I steal away from them to do this. I, I ask them to pray for me while I'm in the midst of this. And, uh, and so I thank uh, Karen, my wife. I thank uh, Hannah, my daughter, and, and Jayla as well because uh, I, I use them even in the preparation of my sermon. And so I thank God for them and for their help in doing what God has called me to do. I thank Pastor Costin, who is enjoying time with his father uh, right now, which is a blessing, uh, and uh, thank him for this opportunity to stand before you as well. Uh, and, and I thank you guys that uh, that you came out, like we said, and, and uh, that you're here and that you're watching from home. Uh, we understand that there's a lot of different options and a lot of different things that you could be doing this morning. A lot of churches that are open, and uh, even more so now that you can go online. And so the world is your oyster when it comes to church services. And so it is not lost on, uh, on me and on leadership here uh, that you choose to worship uh, with solid word. And so we're grateful and thankful for friends and family that are here as well. Uh, and just for a few moments today, I, the title of my sermon is a question. Is it, is it up there? Yeah, there it is right there. Right? What's keeping you from following Jesus? This is all kind of with underneath the umbrella of, of pastor has been teaching and talking about um, discipleship. Right, and, and if you type in discipleship online, you, you will not be at, at a loss for returns, for hits that come back. There's all kinds of things out there, not just about what is discipleship, but even how to become a disciple. Uh, and this morning, I think from a lesson aim, I really want to talk about, and, and hopefully what happens as a result of this sermon is that those who profess a belief in Jesus as their Lord and Savior would reflect upon their life and then identify those things that are internal and external that are hindering them from following Jesus. Let me say that again. The lesson aim is that those who profess a belief in Jesus as their Lord and Savior would reflect upon their life and identify those things internal or external 
that are hindering them from following Jesus. <laughs> and just from a scriptural reference today, the uh, <clears throat> anchor part of it is going to be John 6, 66 through 69. And reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, you'll find these words. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. <laughs> Look, just by way of introduction, I want to talk a little bit about social media. Uh, and, and, and if you have any either uh, inkling of social media, you've got young people in your house uh, that are uh, connected with social media, you know that the currency of social media is followers. Right? That's the, that's the currency that social media kind of trades in. It, it's, it, it, it's, 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 it's what determines whether or not you're successful on a platform. How many followers you have? So much so, right, that there are people out here trying to do anything they can, trying to do as much as they can to get as many followers as they can. And it's because in their mind, and let's just be fair, in the world of social media, followers directly are an indication of a certain level of popularity, how popular you are. It's also indirectly an indication of how much influence you have. I was reading some articles that said that in some countries that once a, 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 a social media personality goes past about 10,000, anywhere from 10,000 to 50,000 followers, that's when brands start paying notice, start paying attention, because now they're thinking, you have enough folks that you can start helping to sell our stuff. You can start influencing some people to start purchasing and buying some things. Now, you and I, as social media customers, so to speak, right, make a statement when we follow or unfollow somebody. Just think about it. Think about how you feel when you've logged in and you're scrolling through and you see something, you're like, hmm, I think I'd like to see some more of that. Follow. Or, mm, I don't know what that is. I don't want to see any more of that unfollow. That feels pretty good. Here's the neat thing about it, right, is that even us as folks in Avon, Indiana, guess what I can do? I can follow some celebrities, but I can also unfollow a celebrity. Take that. Yeah, Mr. Rich and Famous. <laughs> Look, there is something about following and unfollowing on social media. I asked my two researchers who work pro bono. My daughters, right? Uh, and they have their finger on the, uh, on the pulse of pop culture. And, and I asked them about following and unfollowing. Specifically, I just wanted to get their perspective on why they would follow or unfollow somebody. But then and I also solicited some responses even from uh, some Facebook connections. Just posted it as a question. Hey, share with me, if you would, why you follow and, and, and unfollow some people. And I got some, some 
interesting comments back, nothing that would earth shadow or, or make you say, oh my goodness, they were pretty much similar. But when it came to following, for the most part, people said, look, I, I'm trying to follow people who have similar beliefs as I do, right? who think like I do, who have similar interests that I do. In some cases, some people said that I'm following uh, folks who I think can provide some benefit or help to me. Right? They're, they're, they're sharing some inspiration. And, uh, they, they, they've gone through something I'm, I'm going through, and so it it's, it's, uh, it's kind of breathes life into me and my circumstance to follow them and to see kind of what their journey is like because it helps me in my own journey. Some people, this was interesting, but I think we all can get there, and this said that they follow out of obligation. Yeah, you, your cousin reach out to you. You, you, know, you almost have to accept, Right? It's family. They're going to tell their mama, their mama going to, you know what I'm saying, that kind of thing. You, 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 you know, co-workers, classmates, right, or people who follow you, then you almost feel obligated to follow them back. <clears throat> but one thing that seemed to be constant was that they try not to be influenced by just who's being followed in general, who's popular, who isn't popular. They're, they're trying to make their own decisions, which, which is a little difficult because, there are some algorithms on social media that are showing you certain things, trying to get you to follow certain things. So we, we're trying to be independent, but we're working against a system that's trying to influence us. But it is what it is. That's the world of social media. Uh, then when it came to unfollowing, bear with me now. I know you guys are like, what is this? This is not a sermon. When it comes to unfollowing, it was basically just on the opposite end of that, right? If, if the interests begin to differ... Right? All of a sudden, you're talking about some things that, <clears throat> yeah, I'm not, I'm not down for that. you starting to head in a direction that doesn't make sense to me. If the content becomes negative or even the content begins to switch, maybe there's like a bait and switch. You, the, 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 what the person was showing before that got you to click and like isn't what they began showing more consistently and normally on their post and on their channel and those kinds of things. So other content begins to creep in. <clears throat> and in some cases, when the real world interaction with that person is low or next to minimum, well, why am I following you virtually? If we don't kick it in the real world, why am I following you virtually? I had one interesting response, and, and I thought this was funny. They said that they, that, that they would follow people a lot of times out of obligation, whether they wanted to or not, but then hide their feed so that they wouldn't see it. So you're able to now kind of walk, hey, I, I, I followed you. I've kind of returned the social grace and the, and the, and the, uh, uh, the, the hospitality of kind of the back and forth there, but at the same time, I really don't want to see what you're doing. So I'm hiding that. And look, when it comes to following and unfollowing in social media, the locus of control is with us, right? We can make the determination based on the factors I just talked about and whatever other ones that we choose. Whether or not we decide to follow or not to follow somebody is up to us. And, and, it, and it can be arbitrary. I, I can follow you today, unfollow you tomorrow, follow you again the next day, right? Because I, oh, I can do it. Damn, I can do it. <laughs> and what it is, right, is it sets up a very kind of consumerism approach. And that makes sense. That's what social media is. It's, it's for consumption. It's for us to bring in, whether through our eyes, through our ears. It, it is built, right, 
for us to consume and to seek out that which we would want to consume. And in the space of social media, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that approach. I'm not, this isn't a polemic on, on the ills of social media, but, but I think the challenge for the church today, especially the church in America, is that we've allowed this way of thinking, this consumerism that we uh, display and exercise on social media when we follow and unfollow and how we move through that to seep into our Christianity. Well, just think about it. Think about it for a minute. Think about how a lot of Christians search for a church home. <sighs> Don't say anything out loud. But we're typically looking for a church that has a lot to offer. Because we want to come in and consume. We aren't usually looking for a church that doesn't have mature ministries, that needs work that we can then plug in and serve and help build. We come in wanting to sit back and consume. Right? Stay with me. And this, right, kind of seeps into not only kind of just general Christianity and how we kind of move through and we're selecting churches, but it also seeps into how we approach discipleship. Because we've got this notion in our mind of what it means to follow and unfollow. We understand how we can kind of move through that thing capriciously, right, and kind of lightly in the social media world. And so that just kind of blends and translates into how we follow and unfollow Jesus. Jesus is, is trending today. Follow. Whoop. Jesus ain't so popular. Unfollow. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Fernando's following Jesus? Let me follow too. Whoa, wait a minute. Fernando, stop following. Let me stop following. <laughs> and again, in the world of social media, that is perfectly fine. Follow, unfollow multiple times in a day if you want to. But the danger is, is when we take that same methodology, that same thinking, that same mindset, and then let it seep into our relationship with Christ. <laughs> now, what I want us to do and what we're going to do, we're going to spend some time here doing this, is we're going to look at this verse, these verses, in its context, and we're going to walk through and really talk about what are those things that keep us from following Jesus? Now, while we were only looking at verses 66 through 69 out of John chapter 6, it is important for us to have in mind the entire context, the larger context um, that surrounds this exchange that Jesus and Peter have. And, and, and the context uh, is key when reading and studying the Bible because without context, we have people, and, and, and we can do it too, we'll reach conclusions about what the Bible is and isn't saying that are not accurate and is not correct because it's based on incomplete information. And I'm not just talking about historical context, uh, you know, what, what people wore during the time, who, who, what was the government structure like, what, what, what did trade and commerce look yeah, oh, That is all definitely good and it is helpful. But I'm more talking about now more 
narrative context, right? Narrative context. What do I mean? What do I mean by narrative context? Well, this is what I mean by narrative context. If you can think about it like this, if two people were talking out in the foyer area, and I started walking past, and as I got closer, I could hear what they were saying, and then as I got further away, I couldn't hear anymore, and then at the end, if I said, aha, I know exactly what they were talking about. I know exactly the, 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 the issue that they were dealing with. I know everything, the ins and outs of that. I know what to do with that information. I'm actually even going to pass judgment because some of the stuff they said wasn't quite right, wasn't quite accurate. Without giving any thought to what was said before I got there, any thought to what was said after I left, without even giving any thought to whether or not this conversation is a continuation of another conversation that took place that I'm not even privy of. And so when we talk about narrative context, right, what we're trying to figure out is what is the context of these verses within the book? What role are they playing? What role, does these, what role do these verses play within this chapter? What role does this chapter play within the larger book? What role does the larger book play within the whole canon of Scripture? Now, we're not going to go all the way out there. We're going to stay just with John, but it's important, I think, that we get this because, again, now and then it helps us understand these three verses better. I can't just go to these three verses and start talking and teaching and preaching about these three verses without having come back and looked at it in, in broad terms. So stay with me just a little bit as we talk about this because the context for these verses, as I said, it rests in the context of the chapter. And the context of this chapter, chapter 6, rests in the context of the book of John or John's entire gospel. In the narrative context, John's account of the life of Jesus or at least his earthly ministry really boils down to three things. If you're taking notes, these would be good notes to take. First, John is talking about and wants to show that Christ is the one and only God manifest in the flesh. Secondly, he wants to show Christ as being the bringer of new life. Christ is the only path to eternal life. Thirdly, John is trying to communicate in this narrative that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is not a break from, he is not a, a, a detour from the truth of Old Testament scripture, the law, the writings, and the prophets, but they all find their fulfillment, they all find their conclusion, their end in Jesus. And this isn't just, you know, a bunch of biblical scholars sitting around trying to glean this out and, and, and pontificating, hypothesizing about it. But John tells us himself, and Cletus did a wonderful job last week kind of talking about this too in, in John chapter 20, verse 31, where he says that he is writing these things, the entire scroll, so that those who read about these things would know that Jesus is the Christ, that they would believe that he is the Son of God, and that by believing they would have life in his name. Now, the entire Gospel of John can be divided into two sections. The first section from chapter 1, verse 19 to chapter 12, verse 50 is called typically the book of signs. The second section, chapter 13 all the way through to the end of chapter 20, is called the book of the Passion. So obviously the second section, the book of the Passion, is dealing with, focuses on the events that kind of lead up to, surrounding, up to, and including Christ's resurrection and his crucifixion. But the first section, the book of signs, records key miracles 
that Jesus performs, things like him turning water into wine, him healing the nobleman's son, him healing the crippled man, him healing the man who was born blind, and of course, the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. And when we look now at chapter 6, it sits right in the middle of the book of Signs. And it opens up, if you were to flip over to chapter uh, 6, the opening of chapter 6, it opens up with Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then it moves on to him walking on water as he comes out to the disciples while they're out on the sea in their boat. And at first glance, at first glance, it seems like these are just fantastical stories about Jesus, like Jesus and his amazing adventures kind of, kind of a <laughs> narrative here. But... But we should be reading these accounts, and this is why it took so much time, in light of the narrative context that John himself states clearly that these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. But before that, this is interesting, before John says that, in verse 30 he says, look, <laughs> this gospel doesn't contain everything that Jesus did. <laughs> he says, look, everything that Jesus did is not contained in this one scroll. And that kind of to our modern ears, to our contemporary way of thinking, it sounds like a missed opportunity on John's part. I mean, think about it. From our contemporary perspective, if I'm trying to convince someone of something, then I'm pouring on the evidence. I'm putting as much data on the table, as many examples as I can. I'm not leaving anything out so that beyond the preponderance of, of reasonable doubt, I have made my case that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But John, in effect, says... That in the three years that Jesus was on this earth, he has a body of work that the disciples got a chance to witness. In the three years that Jesus was on this earth, <laughs> he was healing. Yeah, yeah, he, he was turning folks uh, from, from destitution into different places of life because of their physical condition. He was bringing folks back from the dead. He was turning water into wine. You heard about that. He was feeding. But he, he's done even more than that. There's many, many more things that Jesus has done in the three years that he was here. But John says, but these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Let me do this again. John says, and the three years that Jesus was here, he did a lot of stuff, a lot of amazing things. But these things <laughs> have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. So to astute Bible readers, it begs the question, if Jesus did all of this, then why only these things, John, are you talking about to convince me that he is the son of God? Because there might be something in all of this that if you told me about that, I might be like, mm, 
Hey, Jesus is the son of God. So it begs the question, John, why these things? Why these things? And, and, and I think that, that, that what we have to get to, and I'm going to talk about this and you'll catch it here, is that what John is doing is he's not collecting random stories about how amazing Jesus is. But John is highlighting specific acts of Jesus that not only display, display God's power at work, but they are prophetically symbolic. And they validate that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the anointed one. Now, that, for most of us, falls dead. This, I, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. Hear me out when I say this. <laughs> the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. What? what hmm? I thought this was God's personal love letter to me. This isn't the Bible, but you know how we do. Hear me when I say, the, God, the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. What am, I, what am I mean? What am I saying? What am I saying? What I'm saying is, is that when we read these acts of Jesus, we think, man, Jesus was just showing out. Look at him, raising folk. Turning water into wine, walking on water. My Jesus is a bad man. But that's because our context is not rooted in Old Testament scripture. Our context is not rooted in Old Testament prophecy. We have not spent generations upon generations waiting and looking for the Messiah. We don't, we don't, we don't have an expectation of what the anointed one would do based on what the laws and the writings and the prophets said. So this is what I mean when I say that the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. So when John is writing, he's not thinking, what is it that Joe Haskins in 2022 needs to see to believe that Jesus is the Christ? He's thinking, what are these good Jewish boys and girls going to need to hear and to know about this man, to know that he is the prophesied Messiah? Which is why John says, look, for those that are like me and Joe has, Jesus did a whole lot of stuff. But those that have been waiting for the Messiah, these things have been selected. Because when you take these things and connect these dots, they lead to a certain place. Now back to John chapter 6. <laughs> Context is important. Brother Charles, after Jesus gets in the boat with the disciples, they now, they cross the sea onto the other side. Now, get this. This is just a freebie. This, I almost fell out of my chair when I saw this. I've never seen this before. Look at verse 21. Jesus, the whole context, right, is Jesus, the, the, the disciples have already left. He's fed the 5,000. They get in the boat. They leave. Jesus isn't in the boat with them, but the disciples head across. They hit some rough riders. They're rowing. They're about three, four miles out, it says, and then Jesus comes walking on the water to them, right? We know that story. The disciples are scared. He's like, hey, chill out, brothers. It's me. And they're like, oh, okay, then get in the boat. Look at verse 21. What does it say when Jesus got in the boat? Then what does it say happened? They immediately arrived at the shore. 
that sounds like one of them amazing things, John. I said, what? The moment Jesus got in the boat, they were, boom, they were there. I checked different translations because I thought, well, maybe this is just this. No, people was like immediately uh, uh, at the same time, at that moment, arrived at the boat. So I'm like, man, that'll preach, but not today. Mm -hmm. Now, they get to the other side the next day. The crowds who had been fed by Jesus previously, early in the chapter, they, right, saw both that uh, he and the disciples had left. They get in their boats along with some other people, and they go to the other side too. Now we're getting to the crux of the matter. We're getting now to where the story picks up, and we got to start pulling out our nuggets here because from verse 22 to the end of the chapter, John describes four encounters. Four different responses from four different groups to one sermonic topic from Jesus. And what we're going to see is three of the four are things that disrupt discipleship. One of them, the last one, is what defines discipleship. So let's walk through these. Let's look at it. Let's hopefully pull out some nuggets for us to reflect upon as we ask ourselves, what's keeping me from following Jesus? Y'all still with me? It's a long introduction. I got another good 45, 50 minutes. (laughs) That's that's what you say now. He's like, yeah, he can't be serious. He can't be serious. All right. The first thing we want to look at is our fixation on physical needs. Verse 25 tells us that when the crowds catch up with Jesus on the other side of the sea, they're all like, how'd you get over here so fast, Jesus? We were just on the other side with you. We didn't see you get in the boat. How is it that you made it over here, right? But Jesus cuts through all this small talk with them. And he's like, look, uh, you're only coming after me. Because you were well fed on the other side of the sea, not because of the signs. And he goes on to say, don't strive after, don't work for food that perishes, but instead you should be striving after the food that won't perish. The food that will lead you to eternal life that the son of man who has God's approval because he has God's seal on him will give you. I'm paraphrasing, y'all. Just follow along, and, and this is Charles Wright version. It, it hadn't been reviewed by a lot of boards or anything, but I think, I think I'm holding true to the text as I walk through this. So the people are like, bet, what must we do to get this kind of bread, Jesus? Because the bread you gave us on the hill at the beginning of the chapter was shown up good. But you're telling us that there's some better bread than what you gave us back there. What is it that we've got to do to get this bread? Jesus says, look, the work that must be done is to believe in the one who God has sent. Oh, Jesus. And then the crowd has the audacity to say, okay, so then what signs are you going to do, Jesus? As if. (laughs) He didn't just feed all 5,000 of them early in the chapter. As if. He didn't just somehow miraculously appear on the other side of the sea. They say, well, okay then, Jesus, if if that's the game you want to play and this is the standard you're going to give us, what is it that you're going to do so that we may believe in you? 
Then they go on to this. This is interesting. He sa- they say, look, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In effect, what they're saying is, look, Jesus, you talking about for us to get this bread, we got to believe in the one who God sent. And, and so you're going to have to show us a sign to believe in. But by the way, you need to know this. The last one that was sent to us by God, Moses, he rained down bread from heaven. So unless you bring in it tougher than Moses, we just letting you know where the bar is set, Jesus. <laughs> Folks, let me tell you something. We are, we, oh, we can be interesting, right? So unless you're bringing it better than Moses, Jesus, we're going to be hard-pressed to believe in you as the one who God has sent. Jesus is like, look, you're still not getting it. You're still not getting it. Yes, our ancestors ate some bread from heaven. But it wasn't the bread from heaven. Oh, Jesus, what are you doing? Right? That, 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 that I've been trying to get you guys to desire more than physical food. Jesus says, look, this, the, the, the bread from heaven comes from God the Father. And to push it even further, in verse 33, Jesus is like, and I'm not talking about bread, bread. <laughs> because this bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, right, he says, is a person. It's a being. So he's being very clear. But hey, get this, this is so funny to me. The crowd is still like, mm, bread. <laughs> they still thinking about the bread they ate on the grassy knoll. They're still thinking about the manna that the ancestors had back in the wilderness. And they, they shout out, well, we want some of that bread, Jesus. <laughs> and in my mind's eye, I, I just see Jesus looking at them saying, bless your hearts. You're so, you're so, so ignorant, you just don't even know. <laughs> you can't even. Mm. And finally, he's like, look, I am the bread of life. <laughs> he said, I've been pointing all these pictures to me. Y'all not picking up. I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, will be satisfied. <laughs> and then in verse 36, he says something interesting. But... Jesus says, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Which then makes the reader, makes us, this is what should be happening as we're reading this. We should be asking ourselves, well, when did Jesus say to the crowd that they saw him but did not believe? I don't remember him saying that specifically. Well, if we look back at verse 26, what is it that Jesus says? You guys are seeking me out. Because, not because of the signs, but because of the bread, because of my ability to fill your stomach. And this is interesting because most of us, when we read about the feeding of the 5,000, we may read it like this and, and, and kind of say, look, we, we conflate that it was a miraculous thing that, that they fed 5,000 folks, that that was a sign right there, right? That they're, they're one in the same. It was a great miracle that we got our grub on on that grassy hill. But again, the narrative context isn't just that the signs that Jesus performs would be witnessed. It's not just that the signs that Jesus performed would be experienced. 
but it's that the signs that they would literally point us, lead us, guide us to a conclusion about who Jesus is. And once we arrive there, that that then would change how we respond to him. Hmm. In this first encounter with Jesus' sermon, we see a crowd who is so fixated on their physical needs that they cannot hear what Jesus is saying to them. They are so fixated on their physical needs that they cannot see what Jesus is trying to show them. Everything that he says, they are passing through the physical needs filter of their lives. Everything that he shows them, he's trying to get them to see. They are viewing through the physical needs lens of their lives. Jesus becomes a means to their end. They want to be fed. Jesus is good for that. Hmm. And we do the same thing today. Jesus' words can't reach us. They can't convict us. They can't impact us. They can't change us because we're too busy trying to figure out how he can meet our physical needs. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we don't hear his words, but when we do, we take them and bend them and twist them and force them into a context that suits our physical needs. You don't believe me? Turn your minds back to our social media feeds and the connections that you have that post some inspirational or self-affirming spiritual quotes. <laughs> Let me help you out. Just because somebody puts God's name in, in something, that <laughs> doesn't make it spiritual. <laughs> but, but, but think about this. Typically, they sound like this, right? God wants you to know <laughs> that your breakthrough is on the horizon. <laughs> or, look, God sees you, Jahaz. He knows you've been in the valley far too long. He's about to raise you up. place you on the mountaintop. I literally saw this one today. This is funny. They take Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus says, look, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be moved, and it would get up and fly into the sea. So they have that verse there, and then at the bottom it says, <laughs> I'm telling, the mountains of debt, sickness, and depression, to get out of my way. <laughs> And I'm laughing. I shouldn't be laughing. It's not funny. <laughs> but these are prime examples. And look, I, 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 I'm pointing out there, but I'll just be transparent. When I was in high school, I was on the basketball team. I wasn't anything special. That's why I do what I do today. I'm not you know, <laughs> doing anything more glamorous than, than my current job. But when I was on the basketball team, I'd take my holy, sanctified self, and I'd write Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me on two slips of paper, and I'd put them in my shoes. Because Christ's going to help me go out here and get these rebounds. He's going to help me go out here and score some points. He's going to help me do what I want to do, because I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. That's another prime example of taking something out of context. Completely out of context. And we all do it. 
And what we find is that instead of asking, how do I conform my life to his words, we're asking, how do I conform his words to my life? How do I make Jesus' words, how do I make Jesus' teachings, how do I make his examples co-sign what I already want and think so that in the end, I'm the one who is ultimately satisfied? In other words, my belly is full. Some telltale signs that we are fixated on our physical needs being met is that our prayers to God are very self-centered. One-way communication. God do this. God please this. God bless this. God protect this. God does this. God does this. God does this. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm out. But never time outside of just me and mine or even just time that says, God, speak to me. What would you have me do today? How would you have me move today? What is it that you want me to hear from you today? Another telltale sign that we're fixated on our physical needs being met is that the time we spend in the Bible is usually us looking for answers to a current issue or problem. Where is, where does it say that all my bills will be paid? It was about to be in the head and not to tell. That's the one I'm looking for. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> How many in y'all, don't raise your hand, prayed the prayer of Jabez? <laughs> y'all remember that? Some people found that and they was like, nobody had ever heard of Jabez before. But then everybody was praying the prayer of Jabez. Increase my territory. Man, that sounds like wanting some physical needs met. Hmm. Another telltale sign that uh, we are fixated on our physical needs being met is that we find ourselves getting mad at God because he's not doing what we want him to do. Right? There's some expectations I have of God of how he should be meeting my needs, and he's not doing that. So I'm mad at him. And in some extreme cases, and it's sad when it happens, We'll even start following something else. Well, God, you're not getting it done. I need this, this, and this, and you aren't delivering. I need to try something else because my physical needs aren't being met. And while we may say that we are followers of Christ, if our fixation is on our physical needs, just like this crowd in the text, while we may be going through the motions of following Jesus, we're really following our own desires. And just hoping that Jesus can help us fulfill those desires. So, <clears throat> one of the barriers to discipleship is that we are fixated on our physical needs. The second one that we're going to look at here is our priority of our own preconceptions. In verse 41, uh, the focus then moves from the crowd to now presumably a smaller subset of the crowd. This is also interesting. As you Again, if you look at the narrative, don't just kind of read the story, but then kind of step back and see, well, how is John setting this up? <clears throat> Jesus has one sermon, one message. The crowd responds. Then all of a sudden we move to a, a smaller group within the crowd, the Jews. I'm going to go ahead and just spoiler alert. Then we move to many of his disciples. Then we move to the 12. 
This is a pretty neat little thing that John is doing here. Same topic from Jesus, same message, same sermon, four different groups, all different responses. So this next group, right, that he moves to is the Jews. And then the scene already starts off rocky as we look at it in verse 41 because John describes that these Jews are already grumbling. They're already murmuring at Jesus' declaration of being the bread of heaven, right, the bread of life. And it is interesting that what they use to counter Jesus' claim and his statement is the fact that they know Mary and Joseph. Is this not Joseph's and Mary's boy? basically what they're saying. Is he not from Nazareth, right? We know his family. We know where he grew up. We know that he didn't just descend from heaven one day and start preaching. He was born. He's been here. What is this whole thing about the bread from heaven? And just like the crowds, right, Jesus cuts through to the heart of the matter, and he's like, look, there's no need for grumbling amongst yourselves, Right? And instead of defending himself, though, I like this. Think about this. Jesus doesn't get into an argument with them. He actually starts teaching. He starts explaining how partaking in this whole bread of heaven thing, actually how it transpires, how it takes place. Namely, that God the Father is the one who then draws people to Jesus, who is the bread of life, And those who are drawn to him, Jesus, will be raised by Jesus on the last day to everlasting life. Jesus then goes to Scripture now, quoting from the prophets, likely Isaiah, and he puts a scriptural stamp on what he has just said, this notion that those who know God will recognize him and and recognize him, Jesus, as the one who God sent. He reiterates again, stresses again, that what happened in the wilderness, I know you guys, it's almost like Jesus is saying, I know you guys are fixated on this manna in the wilderness. But hear me when I say this, Jesus says this, that what happened in the wilderness with the children of Israel and the manna and Moses is not the same thing that's happening right now. Because when they ate that manna, they eventually died. <laughs> but Jesus says, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. And whoever eats this bread will live forever. And as if that wasn't enough. I mean, that's some heavy stuff that Jesus is laying down. Jesus puts a bow on top of all of this, and he says, oh, yeah, the bread that will lead to life is actually my flesh. Man. (laughs) Now, the Jews were already grumbling back in verse 42. But after they got this, bit of information. It says that they began arguing amongst themselves and disputing amongst themselves in verse 52, trying to wrap their minds around what it is that Jesus has just laid out to them, equating his flesh with the bread that comes from heaven and leads to eternal life. The exchange with the Jews is an interesting one because it really shows Jesus' teaching pushing up against the preconceptions of the Jews. (laughs) And the Jews subsequently struggling with that. Yeah, yeah, they were struggling with trying to reconcile what they thought they knew about bread from heaven with what Jesus was saying about the bread from heaven. 
They, they were struggling with reconciling what they thought they knew about what it meant to come down from heaven with the fact that Jesus, the one from Nazareth, is standing in front of them declaring that he descended from heaven. They're, they're struggling trying to reconcile their preconceived notion of, of what it means to uh, uh, be the Messiah, what the characteristics of the Messiah would be, and what it is that Jesus is saying to them and showing them right in front of them. They were struggling, they were grumbling, they were arguing because their preconceptions were taking priority over what it was they were hearing and seeing from Jesus himself. And again, we do the exact same thing. We have preconceived notions about what God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit should be doing, would be doing, could be doing. And I hear some of us saying to ourselves and, uh, that, wait a minute, how can you not have some preconceived notions? It's almost impossible to not have some pre-existing thoughts about something. And I, I don't disagree with that because you could have some preconceived notions because you've been spending a lot of time in God's Word, in serious time, not just verse of the day kind of time, but really getting it in in the Scriptures and really studying. And as a result, you're coming away from that, right, with some conclusions about God's nature, about His character, about how Jesus and His teachings and His examples work and reflect God's nature and character, how the Holy Spirit works. And, and, and you're walking away with some preconceived notions. Hmm. Or you may not be spending any significant time in God's Word. But, but our heads are still full of preconceived notions about what God would do, what Jesus would do, what the Holy Spirit would do. And based on what others have said or what you've read somewhere or what you've seen you, you, or even your own reasoning, you've, you've pieced together some preconceived notions about God as well. Look, the first one is definitely the preferred method. You're spending time in God's word, but there's still a danger in both. Listen, listen, listen. The danger in the first one is that we can become so convinced in our notions because we are so well read of the scriptures that we become prideful and arrogant, believing that we've got it all figured out. We 100% know what it is God would and wouldn't do and leaving no room for humility and ultimately placing God in a box. Yeah, I got you figured out, God. I read all the scriptures. And I know how you think. <laughs> On the other side, the danger is, is the exact same, right? Is that we can be so convinced that our logic and our reasoning has led us to undeniable truth and accurate understanding of the nature of God. And we do the same thing. We put him in a box of our own making and say things like, I just don't believe that a God of love would Because I've reasoned in my own mind. I haven't searched the scriptures. I haven't prayed about it. I, I just don't. There's just no way. And then we'll say this, which is always lovely. I just couldn't serve a God who did such and so and so. And we give priority to our preconceptions. Instead of the words, the teaching, the example of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit as revealed in the Scriptures, following Jesus by definition, hear me, will push 
up against our preconceptions. It necessitates that it must. Hmm. The telltale sign that we are giving our preconceptions more priority is that when Jesus pushes up against what we think about ourselves, when he pushes up against some of the relationships that we have, when he pushes up against some of the causes we align ourselves with, when he pushes up against how we relate to our church family, when he pushes up against (laughs) how we just walk this life, the sign that our preconceptions are our priority is that we first argue with Jesus, then we ignore Jesus, then we just dismiss him altogether. And we choose our preconceptions over following him. I just don't see how a God. I just couldn't serve a God who. (laughs) The last barrier to discipleship, disruptor to discipleship that we want to look at begins here in verse 53. And it's our unwillingness to be uncomfortable. In verse 53, Jesus really just goes in, right? He he doesn't hold back. And he says, look, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you won't have eternal life. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and blood abides in me and I in them. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that manna that your ancestors ate that you guys keep hanging on to and are fixated on and eventually died. But this bread that I am, Jesus says, will result in eternal life for anyone who feeds on it. Same message. He has not changed it, even though it's causing people problems along the way. (laughs) I love this because what it shows us is that Jesus definitely wants followers. But Jesus is not willing to change the destination to get people to follow him. You'll never see Jesus say, well, Jesus, where are we headed? Well, we're headed over there. And they'd be like, ooh, I don't know about that. Jesus said, well, well, what about over here? Is this better? Jesus said, I'm, I'm heading over here. Pick up your cross and follow me. And the audience, right? We talked about this. It goes from the crowd to the Jews, now to many of his disciples, who who once Jesus finishes talking uh, about all of this, explaining all of this, even they now, the text says, are like, whoa, Jesus, pump your brakes. We didn't sign up for all of this that you're talking about now. And instead of the Jews grumbling, (laughs) We are told that many of the disciples were grumbling. It's interesting, interesting, interesting. And Jesus deals with it again straight on. That's, look, Jesus ain't going to beat around the bush. It, it, the reason why Jesus doesn't have to beat around the bush is because he can see into the hearts of men. So we, we talk a lot around what the issue is. Jesus says, look, okay, here's, I see what the problem is. You're talking about this over here. Let's get to the root of the issue. And Jesus does the same thing with each one of these groups, and he does it again with these disciples. And this is interesting, right? And he asks them, look, are you bothered by what I just said? (laughs) Brother Charles, you you got a problem with what I just said? 
That's, that's not like the meek and lowly Jesus we always always look like. He, he's like, uh, you got a problem with what I said? I, it's almost like this. This is funny, right? It's almost like Jesus is preaching and teaching. The crowds and the Jews are up here. The disciples got his back. And all of a sudden, he started hearing grumbling and mumbling from the choir, so to speak. He's like, okay, I expect it. He's like, so y'all got a problem too, right, with this that I'm saying? <clears throat> and I love this. And, and, and I think it's natural for us to think that, that what these disciples are bothered by is, is simply just this idea of eating Jesus' flesh because it's the immediate thing that he talks about right before it says that they were like, whoa, this is a hard thing. To, to, this is a hard thing to listen to. It's hard to get this. But I, I actually think it's much broader uh, if you think about it uh, because um, what they're saying is, is, is more of response to all that Jesus has said. It's hard to stomach. And, and, and that everything from the moment he engaged with the larger crowd all the way to this moment now talking about eating his flesh, it is hard to listen to because of its implications. Follow me now, namely that Jesus is placing himself on the same level with God. This is what I think is happening here, right? And I believe this because of what we see Jesus' response in verse 62, where he says, in essence, would you still be offended by what I was saying if you saw me ascend or go back up into heaven? Now, if they were just grossed out by flesh and blood, that seems like a really weird response to kind of combat that. that Jesus' response doesn't make a lot of sense. But if these disciples were more uncomfortable with Jesus' claim of oneness with, of closeness to, of access to, of representation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then his response makes a lot more sense. It's like Jesus is saying, look, you don't like what I'm saying because it seems like I'm equating myself with God. Would you feel better if you saw me ascend into heaven? Man. He goes on to explain that what he has been explaining can't be reasoned through. It can't be believed by means of the flesh. You're not going to sit down and, and cipher it out. <laughs> That's an old word, cipher. Right? You, you, you're not going to just kind of if A, then B, your way there. But he's saying, and, and I like this because it's, it's, it's Jesus in a way is acknowledging, yes, what I'm saying is hard. Yeah. It is difficult. I'm not just telling you to love your neighbors because it's the right thing. I'm telling you to love your neighbors because I'm God and it's my commandment. Huh. Oh, Jesus, we was with you on love thy neighbor. But you done added in this extra. Man. And he says, look, it... This, 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 this belief, this, this faith, this, this understanding only comes by the Spirit of God who draws or brings people to belief in Jesus. The progression here, we talked about this, in the audience, it can't be overlooked, not just in namesake, but it goes from a crowd who presumably has maybe mixed biblical knowledge. Maybe there's some Jews in there, maybe not, maybe some pagans, who knows what's in there. But then it goes down to Jews who definitely got Old Testament scripture knowledge. 
But then it goes down to many of his disciples who've been kicking it with Jesus, rolling with him, right? Those who are actively following him, and they are now the ones who are grumbling. They are the ones having problems with following Jesus. They are the ones who have been following and all of a sudden come up on something that makes them say, whoa, wait a minute. This isn't what we signed up for, Jesus. And it's all because they are uncomfortable now with what Jesus is teaching. They were okay when he was feeding the 5,000. They were okay when he was turning water into wine. They were okay when he was uh, uh, healing the leprous skin and and raising the dead and causing lame legs to walk. But when he started talking about I and the Father are one, whoa, hold up, Jesus. (laughs) And I think that this is where a lot of present-day Christians find themselves. We've been following Jesus, and then along the way, something comes up that makes us uncomfortable. Something that as we've gotten closer to Jesus, the Spirit begins to convict us of. Something that we need to let go of, or something that he is directing us to do, or somewhere that he's leading us to go. Uh, it, it, It has us uncomfortable. This thing that Jesus is asking of me, the the way that Jesus wants me to live, the commands that Jesus is asking me to follow, the, the way that Jesus is asking me to love, the way that Jesus is asking me to forgive, the way that Jesus is asking me to serve, the way that Jesus is asking me to deny myself is uncomfortable. And because we're unwilling to be uncomfortable, We back off from following so closely. And just like these disciples, we take offense. Jesus, I was all in until you asked me to fill in the blank. Jesus, I was on board until you asked me to believe. Fill in the blank. Jesus, I was down for whatever until you told me I couldn't. Fill in the blank. (laughs) Now, that we've looked at the three things that can disrupt our discipleship. Let's look at the final thing that defines it. And this is the conclusion. We won't be here long. Verse 66, we are told that many of Jesus' disciples turn back. They're not just grumbling and wrestling with this. They turn back and stop following him. I like how the ESV states it because it says they no longer walked with him. And true to his form, Jesus, he doesn't beat around the bush. (laughs) The crowds were grumbling. The Jews were grumbling. Many of his disciples were grumbling. It says that Jesus then turns to the 12 and says, are you going to leave me as well? The crowds aren't getting it. The Jews aren't getting it. Some of your partners (laughs) that you've been kicking it with, said they out. What say you? And Peter, right, whether he was nudged and nominated to do so or he just took it upon himself, he speaks up on behalf of the 12, and he says, in effect, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go to get 
what it is that you are offering. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One. Family, there it is. There it is. You want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? You want to be a follower of the Messiah, the anointed one of Christ? It starts right there with a conviction. Uh, Look, I'm not knocking folks that got so many steps and so many ways and devotions and all that good stuff. I'm not knocking that. But what I'm telling you is is that (laughs) the crowds, the Jews, and even some of the disciples stopped following because they didn't have this conviction that overruled all of the other things, all of the other reasons, all of the other hurdles that they couldn't get over. It is implicit from the text, I believe, that you can read back into it, that the distinction between the crowds, the Jews, many of the disciples, and the 12 is this conviction right here. They didn't believe the signs that Jesus was the Christ. Notice what Peter says, to whom shall we go? In other words, they're convinced that there is nothing and nobody that compares to Jesus. Jesus, who else is is putting it down? Like, who else is teaching like you? Who else is performing miracles like you, Jesus? Who else called us from out of the lives we were in, knew what we were doing, caused fish to jump into our nets, healed? Who else is doing that, Jesus? To whom? What is the other option is what Peter is saying. If we got to follow anything or anybody, Tell me, please, who, who's the number two option? You don't have to give me a list. Just who, who else is there? Peter says, to whom shall we go? Next he says, you, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. I almost could see Jesus be like, finally. Right? And they recognize that what Jesus is offering cannot be found anywhere else. Hear me when I say this. It cannot be found in our physical needs. It cannot be found in our preconceptions. I can't sit and reason how to get to eternal life. Well, probably if I do, yeah, I could probably do that and then get eternal life that way because that probably would count in in God's eyes, don't you think? Yeah, that sounds like a plan. How am I going to tell you how to get something? No, not even you. How am I going to tell myself how to get something? that I've never had, that I can't obtain. Hmm. We can't find it in remaining comfortable. Hmm. There's no other place we can find words of eternal life. And then he goes on to say this, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One. We have believed and come to know In other words, he's saying, we are sure enough convinced. The old folks said, we know that we know that we know that you are the Holy One. I like this. I put this in there because I just like how it sounds. It's like the disciples said, "Uh, Jesus, we've been picking up what you've been putting down. All these signs. We've been connecting the dots, Jesus, right? And we know, look, look, to be fair, like Cletus talked about, they weren't getting it all. 
And I think that's the good news for us today. They're not leaving out of this encounter with a PhD, an MDiv in theology and soda and Christology. No, 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 no. What they're saying is, is that where else can we go? There's something about you, Jesus, that commands and demands, necessitates that we follow you. Yeah, we, we don't understand it all. Some of what you were talking about, eating your flesh and drinking your blood, scared half of us. But you've got the words of eternal life. <laughs> we recognize the signs. <laughs> Family, there it is. You, you, you want to, <laughs> you want to be a follower of Christ. <laughs> you want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, don't get me wrong. You, you need to study your, your Bible. Of course you need to study your Bible. You need to be in prayer. Of course you need to be praying. But it starts with this conviction. And let me tell you why the conviction is so important. <clears throat> because it, 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 if you, I was, I was sharing with somebody just earlier this week. I said, look, it's <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm thinking of Kenny Rogers. Uh, you can't count your money while you're sitting at the table. If you don't know what you're going to do, if you haven't already made up your mind, when you come to the fork in the road, let me tell you something. It is a coin toss, Brother Charles. It's 50-50 what's going to happen. Can I, can I help you out? Let me just help you out. If you're following Jesus, some of your physical needs ain't going to get met. If you're following Jesus, some of your preconceptions are going to get deconstructed. If you're following Jesus, he's going to lead you some places that's going to make you uncomfortable. Go ahead and just swallow that on down right now. Get over that. Accept that. But what you hang on to is not, ooh, Lord, don't take me anywhere that's not uncomfortable. Ooh, Lord, please meet all my physical needs. What you hang on to is, but, hey, he's got the words of eternal life. And I'll be uncomfortable to live forever. I'll go hungry to live forever. I'll have some of my raggedy thoughts deconstructed to live forever. Why would I want to hang on to any of that stuff when the bread of heaven says I offer you eternal life? Charles, you want to chase after your preconceptions because you think you got me figured out. You got your little engineering degree from Georgia Tech and you just think you know how the world works. But I'm telling you, unless you believe in me, unless you eat my bread, you won't have eternal life. And that right there has to be our conviction. You don't have to understand how he can be God and man at the same time. You don't have to understand the Trinity. You don't have to wrap your mind around, is Genesis literal? Is it six days, seven days? Is it young earth older? Forget all of that. Do you believe that Jesus has the words of eternal life? If you believe it, then get in line and follow wherever he leads. Amen. 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 Mm. 
You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.